Hi, I'm James Verdier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. First off, I'm happy to report that today's episode is our 100th since we began the show back in 2015. Uh, and I just want to take a moment to thank all of you for your support over the years. I've learned quite a lot from doing these interviews, and I hope you have too. Um, and today's episode is one that I'm very glad to have mark the 100-episode milestone. I'm joined by Dr. Morgan Grove of the USDA Forest Service, where he's a research ecologist and team leader for the Baltimore Field Station. We had a great conversation that touched on a number of themes and topics that might not be the very first to spring to mind when you think about ecology and forestry, but are incredibly important nonetheless. And you know, those topics range from things like the ecology and history of segregation to urban ecology and the reclamation of wood products that would have otherwise, you know, wound up in a landfill. But I'll let him describe it. So let's go to the interview. Dr. Grove, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be with you. Okay, to get us started, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a sense of, you know, how legacies of social and environmental injustices, um, you know, affect people who are living in urban settings. I think a lot of times we think about ecology, at least on this show, as being something that happens in a, you know, um, rural area, if not a sort of pristine wilderness or one that's defined as such. Right. Well, so, so what we have studied in Baltimore is how past legacies of racial institutionalized racism uh, affect the current conditions and, and how that has unfolded, uh, and particularly over the, the past 120 years. And, and in Baltimore and many other cities, what you had was there was segregation that existed within neighborhoods. And you would have neighborhoods where whites would live along the, the major streets and the nicer houses, and then there would be alley houses, and that's where typically uh, you had people of color, um, where you had servants who were Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, where they would live there. And in the 1900s, that started to unravel, such that segregation was occurring uh, from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. There wasn't, it wasn't segregation within the neighborhoods. And when that happened, what you would see is that um, when you had segregation within the neighborhoods, the environmental quality was fairly similar at the neighborhood level between neighborhoods. When segregation occurred at the neighborhood level, so one scale up, you started to see the differences in the environmental quality, the social quality, the housing quality uh, that started to occur between neighborhoods. And, and with that, you start to see differences in um, access to parks, the amount of trees, the sanitation, uh, crowding was linked to tuberculosis. And, and as that starts to happen, there begin to be stories or assumptions about people and about places that starts to build upon itself over the long term, where and, and we document this in our research where you start to see that when there's requests for zoning variances and it could be it could be a white business in a black neighborhood asking for a zoning variance for even white customers what would happen is that as that was getting adjudicated in a court of law the 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 judge would say well these neighborhoods already are in pretty bad shape so if we just add one more variance, one more environmental zoning variance, it's really not going to diminish that neighborhood. 
In contrast, when you had zoning variances applied for in white neighborhoods, the narrative was, well, we don't want to allow that variance because this is a really nice neighborhood and we don't want to cause it to decline. And those things continue to build upon each other, not only in terms of zoning variances, but also in terms of where do we make investments and this idea of basically um, throwing good money at a bad situation. And, and we see this in the Olmsted reports in 1948 where uh, they, the Baltimore City Parks and Recreation Bureau says, well, where should we make our investments? Should we buy a big park, um, big piece of land where we, uh, it's predominantly white neighborhoods, or should we invest in low-income black neighborhoods? And in those, the, the white neighborhoods already had plenty of parks. The black neighborhoods, it had been documented that they were um, really suffering from the absence of parks. And, and one, of the Olmsted, one of the Olmsteads uh, writes and saying, well, if you invest in those black neighborhoods, um, those neighborhoods are already bad. You're just throwing good money at, at a bad place. And, and that continues on in urban renewal and um, can even occur even today. So you start to see these uh, legacies that just build upon each other starting in the early 1900s. And, and you can follow that trail of the conversation through a variety of different sources that, that, that make sort of, you, you see this happening. You also see the lags of, of desegregation where you, you have um, blockbusting that occurred starting in the 1940s and 1950s and and where you had um, black families being able to move into white neighborhoods and and we, we see now that uh, some of those black what are now black neighborhoods have more access to trees and more access to parks and, and it's not because those investments were made for them it was made for the white residents who, who lived there 30 and 40 years ago. And, and I'll add, I think that the term um, white flight is, is deeply offensive. And, and I'll, I'll be clear why, which is, in, you know, the, the, the narrative is that, well, we had white residents fleeing from the invasion of black uh, households moving into to neighborhoods in the 1940s and 1950s. And, and there may be some truth to that, um, but those people were preyed upon by white realtors who engaged in blockbusting. At the same time, it is critical to remember that affirmative action has almost always been for whites. And, and one of the ways that that played out was after World War II, you had returning veterans coming back and there was a GI Bill. And, and that paid for people being able to go to college, people getting low interest loans. Um, but it was only for certain types of service in the military. And those types of service in the military were only for those sections of the military that were white. And the, the subsidization of mortgages in inexpensive housing in surrounding counties was the main draw for people to move out. And that was enhanced by them being able to get college degrees. So basically, the federal government subsidized people moving to more affordable places in the county. It wasn't white flight where they were trying to flee from someplace. They were actually drawn to the surrounding counties. 
And so as we talk about the, the changes that cities have experienced, and then they say, oh, after World War II, white flight, after Martin Luther King's assassination, white flight ignores the fundamental role that the federal government played in being instrumental in subsidizing uh, white households to be able to move into the suburbs. So essentially, you've got a system that's underlaid by structural racism and, you know, a series of, of decisions which, um, you know, work to advantage um, some groups over others. Um, but l- let's talk for a moment about, you know, um, what those might be in sort of a, you know, kind of on the ground sense, um, you know, in a city. Obviously, Baltimore makes an obvious example. But, you know, what sort of amenities and disamenities are we talking about? So you, you mentioned parks are one. Um, are we also looking at things like, you know, pollution and, you know, environmental contaminants and those types of things? So we are. Um, when we did that, when we really what started our research in Baltimore that, that kind of got us um, looking more closely at segregation was the fact that when we looked at where were the polluting industries in Baltimore, um, what was referred to as TRI sites, toxic release inventory sites that are documented by EPA, what we found was that whites predominantly live close to those areas. And that round ran completely counter to the environmental justice literature. And, and as we tried to understand it better, we realized that the reason that why whites live close to these polluting areas was that these polluting areas were places of employment and that people historically wanted to live close to where they worked. And so whites were privileged to live close to work uh, through segregation. It, it just turned out that those places in an industrial city like Baltimore were also heavily polluting. When we then started to look at, okay, what is the history of segregation? Then we start to look at not only those places of pollution, in that case, it was industrial pollution. Um, we also started to look at other sources of um, pollution and mortality. We looked at the history of infant mortality in the 1890s and, and how that was associated not only with race and income and occupation, as well as topography. And, and you start to see that um, there are changes that, that are occurring um, over time. As, as people become more aware of pollution, as well as um, becoming aware of amenities. And, and we, we see that the, in particular, the, the investment in amenities in parks and trees is appearing in community association minutes in the 1910s, 1920s, and where um, some of the most powerful white neighborhoods actually were the ones who lobbied for the establishment of a city forester and for tree planting in their neighborhoods while in the same meeting minutes um, discussing how they were going to prevent blacks and Jews from being able to move into their neighborhoods through covenants on their real estate deeds. So, so you, you, you see the mechanisms that are at work and, and this is related to um, the green spaces as we talked about trees and parks as well as keeping out um, what, what are considered to be nuisance things, uh, which is certain kinds of businesses that have environmental consequences, as well as where do you have investments in terms of um, creating the public resources for stormwater, water supply, and, and sanitation. 
And, and so you start to see these things as kind of bundles um, in that there's the kind of the yin and yang of the amenities and disamenities that are at play. Um, and, and then that plays out in education. It plays out in public health. Um, we see differences in, in life expectancy of almost 15 years uh, in zip codes that are maybe one or two miles away from each other. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think it is, you know, um, very useful to point out that a lot of times, you know, the things that we might think of as sort of, you know, soft advantages, I, I suppose, like a, a park um, or urban green space is actually, you know, translatable into extremely practically understood health outcomes. Um, you know, we've done, I think if our listeners want to uh, Google a dose of neighborhood nature in regard to the podcast, they'll find an episode that, you know, um, talks about the health benefits that accrue from even, you know, um, having access to uh, a view of a tree um, or, you know, having a place where you're able to, you know, kind of recreate and, and engage in some physical activity. So those things are, of, of course, highly important. And, and it's, and it becomes genetic. And what I mean by this is um, what, what public health research has been able to demonstrate is that mothers, when they are um, pregnant, and they're, 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 they're experiencing stress, they uh, produce hormones that affect the, the, the development of the child while, while the child is a fetus. And, that, and when those children are tracked over time, um, they exhibit differences in cognitive abilities than women who are not in a stressful environment. So it, it has a genetic impact. And, and with that diminishment of cognitive abilities, that can affect their, their fate in terms of their abilities, which then continues, has the potential for continuing over time, right? Um, and it's important to remember that it's, it's life expectancy, it's their health, but it's also affecting, it's, it's affecting the the abilities of the children that can play out over the long term. And, and just as lead can be bad, stress can be bad as well. Yeah, so it has that multi-generational component. Uh, before I, I ask you know, sort of the, uh, a tough question, I, I want to ask probably what will be a relatively easy one, which is that so far we've talked about Baltimore, but are these sorts of uh, phenomena uh, observable in you know, other long-populated American cities? Yes, because it was it was played out at the local level, the state level, and the federal level, and we use redlining as in the mapping of redlining. So that was done by the Homeowners Loan Corporation in in the 1930s, and we see that, uh, and and so that's where the term redlining comes from. So neighborhoods were classified as green, as most desirable, blue, as highly desirable yellow is somewhat undesirable and red is undesirable. And, and one of the factors that goes into the redlining classification among others is the, the presence of blacks and, and of certain ethnic groups, predominantly uh, Irish and, and, and Italian Catholics, you know, reflecting a Protestant view of things. And um, so, so, that, that kind of at a time encoded uh, a lot of the institutionalized racism leading up to the 1930s and then then carried on. And, and the reason I'm spending a little bit of time on this redlining idea 
is that there were 237 cities in the United States that were redlined, approximately. And in, in the Southwest, the Northeast, the Northwest and the Southeast. And uh, research on urban heat island shows that there's a uniform difference in, in temperatures if you look at the parts of the city that were green, blue, red, or yellow lined. Um, our team did research looking at 37 of those cities and comparing canopy cover um, according to those four classes. And green, the green most desirable neighborhoods always have um, approximately 20, sorry, always have double the amount of canopy cover that you have in red line neighborhoods. So it, it I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, and, and you, you see um, the, the work in, in the book, The Color of Law by Rothstein is that, is that this was, was done by the federal government. And, and that's why you see it as supported by the federal government. And that's why you see it ubiquitous throughout the, the country. Okay, so you see this, you know, kind of happening over, you know, um, large numbers of cities around the country. Uh, it, it recurs. It's a, a deep problem. Now, I wonder, you know, how do you address it at this stage? Um, you know, obviously, we have institutionalized racism still in play right now. Um, you know, is the approach to take efforts focused on, uh, you know, small projects to ameliorate it where you can? Um, is, you know, what's, what's the best angle for doing that? I don't think there is a best angle. Um, and I, and I think Lawrence Brown has a new book out that focuses on Baltimore, but is his, his, in a way it's generalizable to, to the city, but he, he, in his last chapter, he talks about some of the solutions. Uh, I think that the fundamental thing is that we address institutionalized racism as a resilient system. In fact, it is, the, it is the only resilient system that we have evidence for in the United States. And, and I think as ecologists, we, we need to think about what are the characteristics of a resilient system and, and how to, you know, and so much of what we talk about as ecologists is how to build resilient systems. Um, I think that we should probably learn from the one resilient system and, and understand how it has sustained itself over centuries and involves the Civil War involves federal law, involves revisions to the Constitution, and yet it survives. And we need to think about all the different ways it perpetuates itself as a resilient system, and then how one could dismantle it. And in doing so, we may actually learn how to build resilient systems that are good. Um, but I don't think there's a single, I mean, that is one of the characteristics of a resilient system is there is no one solution to it, right? And, and as I noted, we fought a civil war about it. We amended the constitution. We have had federal law. Um, we have changes in financial systems and yet still here it is. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, just to give an example maybe of, of the resilience of that system, um, you know, I, it was one of your publications, you know, you, you wrote about that uh, segregation itself. It starts out in Baltimore is uh, municipal segregation and then you know the, that's done away with, I believe, through a legal challenge. Uh, legal uh, legal challenge of 1917 to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, and then you wind up with you know deed covenants um, and you know then discriminatory activities of you know um, you know neighborhood improvement associations and then uh, you know so the, the, it 
whatever one does to try to, you know, um, knock out one of these segregation-inducing um, phenomena is, it, you know, th the system finds a way to sort of, you know, reinstate it. Right, and it's in, in mutually reinforcing ways, you know, with stories. It's a bad place to make an investment. Um, we're going to the GI Bill. You know, there, there are m different ways that you keep pushing on this and, and keeping it in place. And so let's uh, let's talk about a few of the you know uh, things that at least address this you know in a, in smaller ways. So um, why don't we why don't we chat a little bit about the Still Meadow Peace Park and Forest? Um, wh what's that effort? We've been working with the Still Meadow Community Church in the Irvington neighborhood of Baltimore, which is on the west side. It is one of the sort of cultural references is Frederick Avenue that that runs along the. The church and the forest. The, the, for, the church has a ten-acre forest, and uh, it's a place where there's been historic prejudice. Uh, I, I don't like the term disinvestment because um, it really is prejudice. <laughs> you know, um, it isn't like well, we decide not to invest here. It's like there was never going to have that happen, and the. The neighborhood suffers from flooding. Uh, several years ago, they had seven feet of water um, going down the uh, road. Cars were swept away um, after a, a microcell storm burst in that area. And that caused the, the neighborhood to really have a reckoning with this neighborhood, what are its environmental conditions. The church itself ended up becoming a, a hub of trying to help people um, deal with the flooding in their basements and in their homes and, and of recovery. At the same time, they, they realized and that they had this forest patch that was overtaken with invasive plants and vines. And, and they started to think about that the, they would really like to have this forest as a place of worship, but also as a place of healing that they were a neighborhood that was suffering from stress. And, and there were also environmental things that they were kind of aware of about the role that the forest plays in reducing flooding, of cooling the neighborhood. But fundamentally, the, the people of the neighborhood and the people of the church were stressed out from not only this catastrophic event, but the hardships of everyday living. And, and they wanted to do something with the forest. And, and uh, I got to know Pastor Michael from one meeting that involved a lot of scientists and Pastor Michael attended. Um, the meeting was about flooding. And, and so I went out to the site with him and he, he said, well, you're from the forest service and we've got a forest. What do you think? And, and as we learn more about the forest, we, we started to talk about how could reforestation occur. Uh, be, there's no regeneration in the forest because of the invasive plants and because of the deer. And, and we were thinking about, well, what would be the plan for reforestation given those two threats? It was during that time that we realized that the forest had a lot of ash trees in it. And then we realized that emerald ash borer was present and then all the horror stories that we had heard from our friends in the Midwest about what emerald ash borer does, 
you, you can't imagine it until you actually go through it where all the trees die within three months. And then when that happens, and these are trees that are 100, 120 feet tall, ranging from 18 to 28 inches in diameter, um, you know, we had to say to the pastor, you know, you've been doing these trails, you've developed these programs for kids, and you've been engaging the community, and you can't let anyone go in. Because you, you never know when one of these trees is going to fall. You never know when the branches are going to come down and, and could kill somebody. And we said, you know, Pastor Michael, you can't do this. And he accepted that. But he also was like, that's not a long-term solution. So what are we going to do? And so we work with him to try to uh, engage different private sector businesses to, to come in and take down these trees. None of them wanted to do it because the ash when they've died from emerald ash borer, um, can, they just break. They don't, they don't, they, when you try to cut them down, it's not like cutting a dead oak, which uh, still has a lot of structure, structural integrity to the, to the fibers of the tree. And we ended up, um, well, we said to Pastor Michael, well, no one wants to do it. And, you know, but then we sort of looked at ourselves and we're like, well, we're the forest service and we fight forest fires and we're used to dealing with catastrophic things and cutting down trees when no one else wants to cut them down or circumstances where people want to cut them down. And, and so we, our research scientists got trained in how to, in chainsaw certification for service chainsaw certification for cutting down highly hazardous trees. And, and that's what we've been doing, um, which is clearing out the ash trees and uh, also developing plans using um cutting stock to reforest the, the forest and and you know we have some clear ecological considerations one of which is we've got to grow these trees fast enough that we can shade out the invasive plants and get above the brow line of the deer we're going to have to fence off these large pots they're 68 feet by 68 feet and we're working with hybrid poplars and willows and probably in year two or year three will have established enough control over nut light nutrients and will be above, above the browse line that we can start to thin out those initial reforestation plots and start to come back in and plant with um, native species and, and we the forest services we have the genetic variation of chestnuts to bring in and of elms to bring in and of oaks and, and start to think through what is a climate adapted forest and a resilient forest um, for still meadow. And it's ecological, but it's also social. We want to start to develop the trails and the places of meditation and reflection to, to support a resilient community that the church would play a role in um, as an anchor to the community. And so there's our thinking about what is ecologically resilient and what is socially resilient and how can this 10 acre forest be part of that. And, and I think the key thing to appreciate is that this is really coming from the community. We, we work with the community, we walk with the community, the community comes out and, and we all work together, work with Mr. James and I work with um, 
with Elder Steve and Miss Vanessa, and we're doing this all together. And it really is um, social ecological journey. And and they're very interested in the research aspects and. And, and they say, well, you know, this is an old growth forest. And I'm like, no, these are big trees, but they're not an old growth forest. And, and then they're incredibly interested as to why. And, and well, they were the first ones to know. So they said like, why are these mushrooms different than those mushrooms? And like, I didn't know the answer to that first. And then I started to realize that we have the, the ash trees die very quickly. And we have a very different kind of mushroom that grows on them versus another part of the forest where we have a lot of dead black locusts, which um, decompose very slowly and it's a much more woody mushroom that's there but they were the first ones to notice it right like they notice that there are differences but they don't know why the differences are there and then you know and sometimes I have to go back to my mycologist and say like why do we have different mushrooms right um, but it's it's a very interesting and important and gratifying frankly gratifying journey that we are on of being able to use our ecological tools and frankly our, you know, from my background, sociological tools to, to partner, you know, we're not doing it for them. We're partnering with them to um, engage in a, in a process of recovery and, and building resilience. And, you know, do you view this as a, a model that could perhaps be, you know, exported to other cities or even other parts of Baltimore and, and used elsewhere to sort of, you know, address some of the, the consequences of, you know, centuries of, of neglect in areas? Well, we think so. Um, and, and, and we think that we need to have these forested areas. And, and I, I think that there, there are more of them than you realize. <laughs> you know, they just don't have a sign in front of them but that there are these forest patches that can um, be a place uh, in, 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 in transdisciplinary science. We talk about boundary objects and one form of a boundary object is a place where uh, people can come together and share their knowledge and, and to, to create opportunities. Uh, I think that we, there's a kind of an ecological prejudice in terms of what a forest should look like. And, you know, that forest, it's still meadow, is 30 years away. That doesn't mean it's still, it's still an important place. And these people are still important people. And, and so I think that there's, there's something there. And, in, and I think it's important to have these forests close to where they, where they live. And, you know, I think that... Um, I'm going to bet that most ecologists actually probably grew up in suburban or urban areas. And there was that little forest patch or place that they had to go to where they, they first saw nature and were intrigued by it. Later on, they learned like they could get a job in it. Um, it wasn't because they were out in a huge state forest or national forest. And, and so, uh, you know, these places, you know, clearly are, are valuable. And, and I think that it plays into if we want, if we want to see a diverse and inclusive field of ecology, then we also need to have a diverse and inclusive range of forests where people live 
you know, associated with, with the diversity that we'd like to see in ecology. So it, there's that instrumental aspect of it too. And I, and I think that it can play out, you know, not in, you know, we, we've done research on this. Do, does New York city have lots of these small neglected forest patches? No. And that's related to housing markets. Um, would I expect to see it in Cleveland? Yes. Uh, so, so I, I, you know, um, not trying to disparage New York at all. It, you know, it's related to the history of the development of, of these areas. Um, but yeah, I think that we certainly treat as Baltimore is an example of um, the, the opportunities that, that would exist in many other places throughout the U.S. Okay, great. Thank you. And, you know, let's, uh, let's move on and talk about, you know, what is, uh, I suppose, a very different sort of forestry um, in the Baltimore Wood Project. Uh, you know, what's, what's the idea behind that? And, you know, how does it you kind of use the resources that are available, um, you know, in a place like Baltimore? Well, so again, we, we use Baltimore as an example of, um, there was some research done, there was a paper in 2003 that looked at urban wood, wood materials. And, and what was found, this was done by the Forest Products Lab of the U.S. Forest Service. And, and what was found was that, um, there was as much or maybe even more wood coming from urban areas that was going into landfills than was harvested from the national forests. And so that gives you an idea of the order of magnitude of, of wood material. In the, the mid 2010s, um, we had a request to provide assistance uh, to a group in Baltimore called Humanum that had a subsidiary called Details and details was engaged in, in building deconstruction, um, dealing with the many vacant homes that are in Baltimore. And, and that set us on a, a, a path that, that has led to what we call the urban wood project. And, and what that path was, was the following is that, and, and the reason the forest service was involved was because, um, at the forest products lab, we had developed practices and abilities for how to deconstruct homes and to reuse that wood. And, and what we found in Baltimore was, um, the, and the contract that, that Humanum had with the city was that they had to reuse 90% of the material that was coming out of the buildings. And so that's the brick and the wood. When you start to look at the wood more closely, you see that it's all old growth yellow pine. And, and this, is, this had been historically workers row homes. And it was old growth yellow pine. Um, it was probably three or 400 years old when it was cut down and had been sitting in these row homes for a hundred years. It is gorgeous wood and it will never exist again. Right. And, and so there was a market associated with the reuse of, of that wood. And very importantly that, and, and Humanum didn't like really care about the buildings and the wood and the bricks per se. It was a means by which to employ people who had barriers to employment. And, and that was and their barriers to employment was because of the fact that um, they, were, they were returning citizens who had felonies or they had a history of, of drug abuse. And, and these, these folks were looking to, to get a job and to establish a credit history and employment history and, and to, in a sense, establish a family history with their, their families who they had become alienated from. And, and so there was this kind of bringing together of the, the wood and the brick and the social and the economic 
um, and, and trying to, um, uh, as my friend Jeff Carroll would say, you were taking a Venn diagram and you're trying to smush it all together into just one circle. And that's what we, we started. And, and, but it began with the building deconstruction. And then we started to work with the city also in their forestry division who um, is, has the job of maintaining trees and taking down trees when they die. And, and what we were really after was this idea that my friend Beth Stroman coined, who had been the director of the Office of Sustainability, of waste to wealth. And the building side was vacants to values, the wood side, the, 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 what we call the fresh cut trees, um, was waste to wealth. And, and how did we to think through the entire system of, of wood and brick and people and their intersections and trying to retain as much value as possible. So the forest forestry division, instead of cutting down a tree into two foot or three foot sections, the length of firewood, they had to cut it in the longest length possible. And we had logging trucks, so it wasn't you know difficult to take a, a 36 foot log and put it on a logging truck. And, and how could we try to create as much value and, and retain it throughout the whole system? And as my friend Mike Galvin would say, you, you can make firewood out of logs, but you can't make firewood. You can make um, firewood out of logs, but you can't make logs out of firewood. And, and, and so we began that process of trying to retain as much value as we could. And, but then we started to say, well, who could be potential purchasers? of this material so that we could increase the amount of employment at upstream. So it's like, how can we increase the amount of value downstream so we can increase the amount of employment upstream? And, and so we, we um, sent an email note to room and board. Um, they're a furniture company, home furnishings company in the United States. They tend to make everything from uh, in the United States, they care about sustainability, and you know we thought, hey, these folks might be interested. And they wrote back um, pretty quickly after that and said, are you, are you prepared to have a phone call about this? And and we said, sure. And and um, turned out it was a Shark Tank thirty minute pitch to them, and they said, okay, we'll be on a plane in in two weeks. Can we come in two weeks? And they came and um, visited in April and. They loved what they saw, and they had the urban wood line running in December of the same year. And what we started to realize was, well, and, and first of all, that partnership has been fantastic. And they have really elevated the conversation about how we can reuse wood when it's already been harvested, but also use wood when it's coming from urban areas. Um, there was a, a publication, well, so there's a, a journal called Fast Company, which is about businesses and particularly innovative businesses. And, and there was an article about room and board, Taylor Guitar saw that, Taylor Guitar does 800 handmade guitars a day. And they're based, they, they really want to work with all the, the internationally with the wood that they bring in, but they're concerned about the, the product their their ability to access woods from other parts of the world and want to also develop domestically and they released the urban ash guitar made from ash in, in California what was it a year and a half ago 
And, and so, and we've been talking with the anthropology and others and, and, and it's just, how can we continue to make the case that there's a lot of value uh, of wood from our urban areas and uh, there's a great opportunity socially and economically to frankly advance uh, social and economic goals that, that we may have as well. And, and so that it, it, it still follows, I think there's a lot of similarity between, even though you, you made the point, like let's talk about in a sense, the Monty Python, like, you know, something completely different. Um, both of them share a lot of similarity in, you know, how do we, how do we adopt systems thinking, social ecological thinking and and trying to understand the system to produce transformational change. There are two different paths by which to do it, but the underlying thinking is the same. Like we want to do social, social ecological approaches and systematic thinking and transformational change. And, and so we, we take those, you know, that training that we have and the knowledge that we have to produce that social, economic, and and ecological change. Yeah, and I mean that's really striking because you know obviously these are very you know different projects in some senses, but in others they're all derived from um, you know the same sort of thought with the same sort of goal, and you know obviously with many of the same players. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess that's it's it's the thing to to stress is um, you know. Do you know a lot about trees or is the key thing is that you know a lot about the systems that involve trees and, and how to apply that systems sort of understanding to things. And, and ecology is fundamentally about the study of, it is a relational science and it, and, and context always matters. And, and with that, I, I think that people who have ecological training are, are frankly well adapted to, to do this. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I think this would probably be a great note on which to leave the conversation, but I'm going to ask one kind of dumb question before that anyway. What was the plight of urban wood, uh, you know, if it's not used in upscale furniture or tailor guitars? Does it just end up in a landfill somewhere? Uh, it gets chipped. And it gets made into mulch and compost. Um, uh, or it goes in Baltimore, there's a uh, a a trash to energy incinerator system. Um, it, we, we basically have run out of landfill space. One of the main drivers is for figuring out alternative uses for urban wood is that everyone's landfills are filling up. I mean, it's landfills. So uh, I've, I've, said to, I've said to my folks, you know, if, if you can come up with a solution to landfills, incarceration, and stormwater, like those are the three most expensive things that cities deal with. Mm -hmm. In the case of recidivism and incarceration, state of Maryland, the cost of incarceration is $38,000 per year. Was it Georgia, 72,000, California is 119,000. Just, if you can just keep a person out of jail, it's worth $38,000. If you can keep a person out of jail and, and um, keep stuff out of the landfill, 
and solve a stormwater problem, <laughs> that was just worth a lot of money. Right. You know, um, and so uh, our wood's not going into landfill. Some of it's getting burned. It was originally going into mulch and compost. Now we have firewood. Now we're, you know, moving towards doing dimensional lumber. Um, now we have, we have local furniture makers showing up and buying the logs just wholesale. You know, at what, 50 cents a, 50 cents a board foot. Um, they're taking a wood miser to it, cutting it to mental lumber. They're drying it and they're using it. Uh, we custom as an example, Sandtown's an example, and they're making beautiful furniture that has a story. You know, and one of the, one of the things that we had to figure out in like one of the things, the, the wood is really valuable if you keep the story attached to the wood. And we had to figure out the, the, the data science of logistics of being able to follow, like this came from 1800 Biddle Street. Your dining room table came, you know, came from 1800 Biddle Street. So the supply chain data management came, but it was like, we know data. <laughs> I, I can follow a water sample, I can follow this log. I mean, it's like, that's a big deal. So um, yeah, that is, that, that's, we're keeping the stuff from becoming, like, you know, when you, you see someone come and take down your chip, your tree, how does it leave your front yard? It, in a big box of chips and, and lots of two foot length cookies that then get chipped later in a horizontal grinder. Yeah, that hits from uh, incredibly close to home. We just had a tree removed that absolutely had to be removed because it was going to fall in the house. But um, yeah, it was, you know, probably this incredibly valuable old oak tree that's been standing for quite some time in our neighborhood. And, um, you know, it was, shipped and chopped up and out of the way, you know, all at once in one day. Yeah. It makes my heart cry. <laughs> it might too. I've still got, I've still got a few chunks in the backyard that the kids play on, but Sweet. Um, what's, uh, what's next for this work? Well, with still meadow, we are working to, well, it's a journey. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that we want to understand is what is the health benefits of stewardship? not just being in the green, but, you know, actually working in the green. Um, it is a community engagement. We're working with Nature Sacred, which works with um, different partners. They, they do the planning and then, then you know, you've got to do the operations part uh, to, to do a master plan and a design for Still Meadow overall. Uh, one of the things that that you know, I've been reading about them and talking with them, and and they did the Walter Reed um, Green Path for veterans who suffer from PTSD, and and they made this offhand comment. They said, you know, one of the things that they were told as they were working on design was they wanted to sort of clean up the forest and pick up all these long lengths of fallen tree, and uh, the veterans said, no, 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 we don't want you to do that. That reminds us of the people that we left behind our brothers that we left behind in Afghanistan. And um, that was really powerful to me. And, and so we're, we're clearing the forest and we've got all this black locust that doesn't decompose at all. And we're like, okay, let's start cutting this up. And I'm like, yeah, they're all going to be six foot lengths. And I'm going to stockpile them on the side. So we're going to reforest 
and we do all that planning, we're going to pick up these six foot lengths and we're going to put them back in. You know, and so there's this art and spirituality um, piece that's going to be evolving for us as we, we work to do that reforestation. And, and the ecologists are so funny. They're like, you know, well, we really wonder, like, how is the community going to react as they learn all this ecological science? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all go to church. I'm really wondering how you all, all you ecologists are going to work, you know, change when you get exposed to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we'll, we'll see, you know, like, but I'm serious. It, it is a journey. Um, but it's, it, you know, I, I try to remind people, this is a 30-year job, you know. Um in Baltimore on the urban wood, it's, it's really to start to think through um, creating an urban wood industry. And, and that's a local and a regional industry, but then how does, how does that start to become part of and partner with St. Louis, Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, Virginia is really trying to push urban wood. And a lot of people would prefer to buy urban wood and know that it's employing people in urban areas and achieving social and economic goals. So that's a place where we're, um, it, it's really interesting. The private sector is really excited about this. And, you know, I perceive myself as a government scientist is like, I know I've won when someone else wants to do what I've been doing. Right. You know, like I'm, I, it's not like I have to own it, you know? And so I think that's, that's, that's going to take off. Uh, room and board has said that they could, they anticipate over the next 10 to 15 years, 20 years, that all of their furniture will be made from urban wood. I, I think it could happen sooner. Um, so they're both really exciting. Um, for me, they're exciting, exciting projects. And you know, we're just part of it. You know, I think it's really important that we don't try to control it and, and just keep trying to see where we fit in and adapt and, you know, sort of think about there's a duality of resilient thinking. Like how do we, how can this help be part of dismantling one resilient system and building another and always you know, while you're, you're thinking about the multiple ways to dismantle something, you're trying to think about the multiple ways to build something at the same time, you know? Um, so there's this duality that's at least going on in my head um, in thinking about both of those projects. And you know, the urban wood connection is I need park benches, you know, I'm going to go get it from the, the, the log yard at the forestry division. Sorry to interrupt. No, not at all. I, I think that I, I think that that thinking makes a lot of sense to me, and I'm, I'm sure it will to our listeners as well. Um, and I think we've got a lot to look for in the future too. Uh, Dr. Grove, thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely, pleasure to be with you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder: the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.